Romans chapter 1, I want to read to you verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God doesn't care how much truth you're holding if you're not obeying it. He doesn't care if it's the truth of creation, the truth of providence, the truth of conscience, the truth of revelation, which he deals with in that order, following that verse. If you are also living an ungodly life and an unrighteous life, the wrath of God is revealed by the gospel against such men. He takes up the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1 and condemns them all. In Romans chapter 2, he condemns the Jews. In Romans chapter 3, he condemns them both by Scripture. With numerous quotations in verses 9 through 18. And then he introduces salvation from our condemnation by the grace of God, the free grace of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, Laid hold of by faith. Romans chapter 4, he gives us the example of Abraham. Romans chapter 5, he takes us all back to Adam. And we find that we have need of one who will obey for us. To make up and to cover the one that disobeyed for us. And so in five chapters and 61 messages, we have learned about condemnation and salvation. And we come to the sixth chapter, and I dare say that the sixth chapter is more important than any one of the first five. The first five tell us what God has done for us. The sixth tells us what we ought to be doing for Him. Paul starts it off by asking the question, What shall we say then to Romans 1-5? through What shall we say then to the obedience of one, the second Adam, in the last ten verses of Romans 5? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If God has such abounding grace that is able to cover abounding sin, the last two verses of Romans 5, then can we go ahead and live any way we want? God forbid. God forbid. The first 13 verses of Romans 6, the argument of the Apostle, is the Baptist doctrine of baptism demands that we live a holy life. Because when we were baptized by immersion, by being dipped and plunged, buried and planted under water, and raised up again out of that water in a picture of a resurrection, we declared that we were dead to sin, and alive to God. Amen. And only Baptist baptism does that. Right. I'm absolutely dogmatic about baptism. Of course I am. Amen. Why would I give the Roman Catholics and their little daughter harlot churches any credit for anything on this subject? Right. All they've done is copy their mommy. Right. And their mommy is an abominable whore, the great whore of Revelation 17. She is a harlot church, and they are little harlot churches. They themselves will confess that they came out of her. And they corrupted the doctrine of baptism in its design. They corrupted it in its mode, and they corrupted it in its subject. 
They sprinkle or pour water upon little infants, all in the name of regenerating them. Baptist baptism is a symbolic, figurative picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. And we give God the answer of a good conscience of a person already forgiven and already cleansed when we get baptized. We've already been saved. We get baptized to show God how we were saved and how we're going to live for Him because He saved us. It is a picture of burial and resurrection in three ways. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our justification. We bury our old man and rise to walk in a new life. And third, we know that if the Lord Jesus Christ tarries and this body eventually gives out and I am laid beneath the surface of the ground, I shall rise again at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three glorious pictures of burial and resurrection all taught by only one doctrine of baptism. And no wonder the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, There is one Lord, one faith, hello, one baptism. You say you're so dogmatic about it. Thank you. Thank you. Pray that I'll stay that way. We have fathers in the faith that gave their lives for our doctrine of baptism. Why shouldn't we give our lives in a living way by expressing the truth? Romans 6, 1 through 13 was... You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Look like it. All appealing to baptism. Verses 14 through 23 are a different argument from the apostle. Same point. Shall we continue in sin because of God's abounding grace in chapters 1 through 5? Same point. Shall we continue in sin, but a new analogy or a new metaphor? He's no longer appealing to the figurative aspects of immersion, he's appealing to a human relationship that men had then and we have now, though it's a little different, and that's one of servitude, being a slave to a master. And the issue is, if we've been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be the slaves of God, not the slaves of sin. And so from verses 14 through 23, he runs this comparison. He picks A relationship in life that isn't very pleasant sometimes, but he picks it to see who we're going to be a slave for. Are we going to be a slave of sin or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to look at us, look at verse 14. Let me quickly read verses 14 and 15 to you. We covered them last Lord's Day, but I want to remind you because I don't want you to forget what these words mean. The outline will be available. You can always ask. Don't get confused by the first clause of verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Two times. So the first half of the chapter, which is using baptism as the evidence of how we ought to live, is answering the question, shall we continue in sin? The second half of the chapter is answering the question, What then? Shall we continue in sin? Shall we sin? Verse 15. What does it mean when it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you? Well, I gave you numerous reasons and explanations and proofs of what it meant last Lord's Day, and I don't have time to repeat that. I'll show you the shortcut. Just go to the second half of the verse. 
For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. The apostle is not arguing about our legal salvation in Christ. Positionally, in heaven, without sin. He doesn't mean that. He's not arguing about our vital deliverance by the Holy Spirit regenerating us. He's not talking about our final deliverance. He's talking about the fact that the gospel of grace has brought us a message of hope, liberation, and promises that frees us from the condemning, hopeless, negative, damning economy of the Old Testament. It is the difference between the law of Moses and the Old Testament form of worshiping God and the New Testament liberation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin shall not have dominion over you, because in the gospel message, we hear that Jesus Christ has paid for all of them. We have heard that there is one man who is perfectly obedient for us. We have heard that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we shall receive the power to live above the power of sin. And if there's going to be final glorification, it tells us that it's all been done by Jesus Christ and the cross. It liberates us from the do and live doctrine Of the Old Testament. And he calls it doctrine in verse 17. This is a practical phase of salvation. This is referring to the gospel. Are we freed from the dominion of sin legally by Jesus Christ's death? Of course. Are we freed vitally from the claims and dominion of sin in our nature by regeneration? Of course. Will we be freed finally from the presence of sin when we're glorified in heaven? Of course. But that's not here. What's here is, shall we continue in sin? No. We've heard the joyful sound. The Old Testament never heard the joyful sound. They heard the dreaded sound. The dreaded sound of a trumpet waxing louder and louder on Mount Sinai, and that if anyone got near it, they were to be thrust through with darts. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that even Moses was exceedingly afraid and quaked. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Its claws, its claims, its chains, its bondage as a schoolmaster spanking us every single day when we did something wrong and giving us no hope, having a system of sacrifices that we had to repeat every year because they never made our consciences free, that damning, controlling, spanking, beating, hopeless system of religion has been broken by a new one. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that excelleth in glory. Far superior to the Old Testament. I must go on. It's so obvious if you read the second half of verse 14 what the first half is talking about. And then if you read verse 15, you realize, oh, this isn't talking legally, vitally, or finally at all. Because it says that we could make a choice to go back and be a servant of sin. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Now he just said sin shall have no more dominion over you. Then why does he say that we could continue in sin by choice if we wanted to in verse 15? Because he's dealing practically with the effect the gospel should have on our lives. Not what Jesus has had legally and the Spirit has had vitally and God will have finally. We've got to hear the gospel of grace and let it free us and tell us. All our sins have been put away and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been applied to us. Amen. Verse 16, we can't do, we can't continue in sin because if we yield ourselves to sin, then we're the slaves of sin. And that's totally contrary to their profession of faith that is in verse 17. But God be thanked. I went over all these words. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, 
But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. That is what's being talked about in these four verses. The, the doctrine of the New Testament gospel of grace. And it's God that made the difference for men to believe it. Taught it last Sunday. Being then made free from sin. Not freed legally, vitally, or finally. Freed practically by the glorious liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that your sins are paid for by Christ, you're freed from the condemning schoolmaster of the law. You've been driven to Christ. Now we have Christ. The law is of no consequence regarding our eternal redemption. Ye became the servants of righteousness. The gospel freed us from the claims of sin by telling us they've been paid for, now live for him. And so we do. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. Let me stop right there. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men. My Roman readers, I am going to go to a natural illustration. I'm going to use a natural analogy to help you understand the spiritual concept of what you ought to be doing with your lives once you've been saved by grace. Should you continue in sin? No. Let me give you an illustration. I speak after the manner of men. I'm not going to use abstract spiritual concepts. I'm going to give you a very real analogy that I would like you to think about. I'm doing it because of the ignorance of your flesh in grasping spiritual points. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. This is the message of the gospel. Titus 1 told us that Paul's gospel that made manifest God's promise of eternal life before the world began was to be acknowledged with a godly life. Chapter 2 of the same book, Titus 2, 11. The grace of God that hath appeared to all men teacheth us that. True grace teaches us to deny ourselves in godliness and live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And here it teaches us that as we were once the slaves of sin... Adding iniquity to iniquity. I mean, we were just grabbing it all in, taking our fill of the world as much as we could. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and all that was in the world. We were adding iniquity to iniquity. Even so, we ought now to be yielding our members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Our progression in the past, Ephesians 4 describes as greediness. Without the grace of God, we greedily run after sin. Whether it's anger and malice in our hearts, or it's fantasies through our eyes with pornography, or it's going to places we shouldn't, or it's stealing, or it's committing adultery, or it's blasphemy, or it's sodomy, or it's disobedient to parents. We rushed after those things, and we greedily did them. And we added iniquity to iniquity. And we have the little words, even so, that little adverb construction that we learned in chapter 5, what it means, didn't we? Even so means in exactly the way that's been described is how this new description ought to be kept. And the way that we once sinned is the way that we should now live righteously. With the zeal that we had for sin and the greediness that Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 describes, 
Let's have some of that for righteousness and holiness. Even so, we should now be the slaves of God and yielding our members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. Let's continually be improving, moving from one stage of glory to another with righteous living. That's what the gospel preaches. You've received that form of doctrine. It frees you from the law. It has brought you to be a slave of God, a slave of Jesus Christ. Do you know how Paul would interpret that verse if you were to ask him exactly what do you mean, Paul, by as we were once a servant of sin, now we should be a servant of righteousness unto holiness. He would say, because the love of Christ constraineth me. See, he was once constrained by sin, but now he's constrained by grace. God didn't make him do everything he did. He labored more abundantly than they all. Why did he labor more abundantly than the other apostles? Because we reckon this way, that if all were dead and one died for all, then they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. That is being freed from the dominion of sin, and that's being claimed by the dominion of grace. And it's the practical phase of salvation. That's verse 19. I'm going to use a human analogy to help you understand how you ought to be living now. The way that you once lived as a slave of sin, why don't you use that same kind of zeal for righteousness? Verse 20, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. See, the bondage, the bondage was over us when we were in sin. We just kept going. We hadn't heard the gospel. We hadn't been regenerated. And that's not the order. The order is regeneration, then conversion. But we were under the dominion of sin. We just kept doing it. We were free from righteousness in the sense that there was no claim on us for righteousness. We hadn't heard the joyful sound. We hadn't heard what Jesus Christ had done for us. We hadn't heard what we should do for Him. We were unregenerate without a care in the world of spiritual things. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Dead in our trespasses and sins. That's when we were the servants of sin. We were free from righteousness. There was no dominion. There was no claim. There was no motive. There was no pressure. There was no instruction. There was no incentive. For us to live righteously is what the verse means. Verse 21. Lord, help us all to get these verses. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The apostle in verses 21 and 22 is going to describe... Two stages of living in sin and two stages of living as a slave of God. The two stages are this. When you live as a slave to sin and you yield your members, you yield your eyes to look at things you shouldn't look at, you yield your mind to think about things you shouldn't, you yield your lips to say things you shouldn't, you listen to things you shouldn't, you go places you shouldn't, You don't do, you don't look, you don't see, you don't hear things that you should look, see, and hear. When you yield your members to sin, there's a consequence now and there's a consequence in the day of judgment. Two stages, the apostle condemns living in sin practically by the force of his gospel. We have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ to be his slaves. And what a price he paid. He gave his own life. To take us off the slave block 
where we willingly were in the palace of the strong man. The stronger man has delivered us. What fruit had ye then? The question is, what was the benefit, the reward, the effect, the consequence of sin in your life when you were living in sin? What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye now are ashamed? Now that you're Christians and you look back on your adultery, blasphemy, sorcery, sodomy, disobedience to parents, anger, wrath, tail-bearing, slander, and all the sins that are described in Romans 1, verses 24 through 32, when you were in them, what benefit did you have? What fruit did you have in your sins, in the things that you are now ashamed of, because the light of the gospel has totally changed your mind as to how you view that kind of a lifestyle? What fruit did you have? For the end of those things is death. The argument is this. Should we continue in sin? Answer. What fruit, benefit, or reward, pleasure, did you really get out of sin, of which you are now ashamed of those things, because there is a new light in your heart that tells you those things are disgusting? Third, those things are going to drag souls down into hell. That's pretty good reasoning in a verse. What fruit had ye in those things? If you choose to serve sin, there are punishments now, and there are punishments in the great day of judgment. What are the benefits of sinning now, and what are the benefits of sinning later? Moses would say that the pleasures of sin only last a season. In Hebrews chapter 11, where Paul described him leaving all the riches and pleasures of Egypt. Even pagans know that sin doesn't pay. Have you ever heard, when a person looks older than they really are, that is the result of hard living. Not hard working. Hard working's never hurt a person. Hard living. What do they mean by hard living? When the world says hard living, what would we describe it as? Wicked living. Sinful living. Drunkenness. Adultery. Anger. Wrath. It consumes men. It tears them up. Do you know how they try to deal with it? Drugs and alcohol. They try to blot out the fact that it's tearing their lives up. Even pagans know that a sinful lifestyle doesn't work. What fruit had ye then? What fruit had ye then? Let me ask you this way. The death that is clutching at you, and brethren, if you want a better sermon than today's, Just go back to October 23rd, 2005 and listen to the one entitled Eternal Life is a Gift from Romans 6.23. There is a black vortex dragging you down right now into the pit, an abysmal pit of the punishment for sin. Except the Lord Jesus Christ has rescued us from it. But if we give ourselves and yield our members to serve sin, it will pull us down now. And it's giving the evidence that you're going to be pulled down in the great day of judgment. Righteousness is the proof of eternal life. If you can imagine death, death is ripping at me right now. It is not waiting until this assembly is over, my brothers and sisters. You're aging right now before my eyes. Remember, it's sucking the everything out of your everything. Remember? I can't go there again. Or we're going to be four weeks on this verse. 
What fruit had ye then in those things? If you can imagine death in three parts, most men can't imagine death in one part. They ignore death to the best of their ability. I have worked around intelligent men who were bold in professional matters, but boy, one of their colleagues die. It was most interesting to watch these bold men try to avoid a funeral because they did not want to look at their colleague in that box. And death is taking us down physically, and it's it's already taken us down spiritually. And there is another death coming that makes the first one look like a picnic. And it's called the second death. And brethren, it's all the result of sin. Sin doesn't pay. Or we can say, sin pays, but it pays the wages of death. For the wages of sin is death, as the 23rd verse tells us. This whole chapter is the answer to a question. Shall we continue in sin? The wages of sin is death, and you are giving the evidence of death when you live in sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I thank God for inspired disjunctives like that but. Thank you, Lord. Can you imagine death? Was the temporary, guilt-ridden, dysfunctional, troublesome pleasure that you got out of your sin worth dying, dying, and dying for eternity. He flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. Psalm 36 and verse 2. Lot thought that it was real nice that his daughters wanted to fix him supper in a cave. He thought that was so nice, and they had gone to the pains to break out some extra wine. What a great night. He was feeling so warm and fuzzy as he got warmer and fuzzier as he drank some wine. Oh, Lot, he was feeling good. He was so relaxed. Such good daughters he had. Huh? What fruit had ye then? So he drank a little too much wine and was drunk. Oh, what fruit did he have then? He felt so good. He felt so relaxed. Oh, he felt relaxed. Oh, the pleasure. He was feeling so good. And so he did it again the next night. Hey, that was good last night, girls. Let's do it again tonight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Three or four months later, he has to ask why neither of them have had a period and why they're both swelling in their stomachs. And they got to tell him, Daddy, do you remember the night that we had those great meals together and we we served you wine and another glass of wine? Remember, Daddy? We've got your baby inside us. You say, well, not all sins are like that. Wrong. All sins are like that. That's right. The Bible just wants to illustrate some of them by telling us some graphic, gory details. And so we have the rise of a nation called Ammon and the rise of a nation called Moab. What fruit had ye then? What fruit had ye then? What was the reward? What was the reward, Lot? Was it worth it? And Lot, I know you're in heaven right now. But Lot, what you did with your daughters takes most men straight down to the pit of the lake of fire. What fruit had ye then? 
in those things of which you are now ashamed. We're ashamed to hardly talk about it. You guys got so quiet, I thought I should maybe quit and run out that side door. But that is the truth of God's Word. And it's given to us in detail, and I want you to think about it. When you take that extra glass of wine, beyond what you should take to keep your wits about you in their full capacity, it'll take you down and destroy you. Look what Lot did with his daughters. You say, well, I'm glad that's the only one in the Bible. Judah got sick and tired of his daughter-in-law nagging him about a husband. He got sick and tired of Tamar, and he said, oh, just leave me alone. When she grows up, you can have him. He got rid of her. He gave she away. He was lonely being out there with those sheep all the time and not near his wife. He happened to spot this tent with a woman with a veil on. Surely, a little little rendezvous with a prostitute couldn't hurt anything. Surely. Yeah, oh, that feels good. Thank you, thank you. Listen, what are you going to pay me with? Well, I'll just keep these as proofs that I will pay you when I get some cash. What fruit had ye then, Judah? He gets word, your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant, and he knew she wasn't married. Let her be burnt with fire. Who did it? Well, it's whoever owns this signet and this staff. Oh. Oh! She's more righteous than I. Is that in the Bible? Amen. Oh, it felt good. Samson thought it was a lot of fun to play around with Delilah. She was one hottie. He had never seen anyone like her in Israel for good reason. She was such a hottie. He just kept playing with her. She was so much fun. She was so exotic. She made those Israelite girls look so dull. I mean, they all, you know what? They look like Amish compared to a Philistine prostitute. You girls ever get called looking like men? We don't look like Mennonites or Amish. They're in an equal ditch on the other side. Equal ditch. God never had any woman that looked like Amish or a Mennonite. Never. It's ridiculous, extreme. Samson thought she was so wild. How did he end up? Well, he woke up from a nap. And he put his hand up to his head to throw his locks back and shake himself, the Bible says. And when he put his hands up there, all he could feel was stubble because somebody had just shaved him. I'm going to rise and go out like every other time. Come on in, boys. Let me show you a thing or two. Taken down so easily because he was impotent before the Philistines. He gets his eyes gouged out by the Philistines and he's down grinding in the, in the temple and the, in the nation of the Philistines. Where did it come from? He wanted to mess around with a girl that he wasn't married to and he didn't want to listen to his two parents who told him, why can't you marry one of the maids of Israel? You say, but he was 30 years old. Why did he have to listen to his parents? Because that's God's order. Didn't matter what his age was. Listen, the authority of a father is so great in the Bible that if he doesn't want to let his daughter get married, he has the authority to keep her from getting married. Not who she marries, whether she can marry. 
You say, what book of the Old Testament is that found in? It isn't. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Get used to it. He didn't want to listen to his parents. How about Amnon? Amnon thought his sister, his half-sister Tamar, was the most delicious-looking thing he'd ever see. And if he could just have a little time with her, it would satisfy everything in his soul, everything in his flesh. How long did the pleasure last? When the Bible says the pleasures of sin for a season, how long? Less than two minutes. Less than two minutes. He then hated her with a hatred greater than the love he had for her. The apostle is asking you today through me, what fruit had ye then in those things of which ye are now ashamed? And the end of those things is death. Why do we ever sin? Why do we ever sin? The reward is nothing. What did it cost Amnon? As soon as he did it, he was, he was repulsed by himself. He despised her. He hated it. And 15 minutes after it had happened, her brother, Absalom, who was a pretty tough dude, knew all about it. And he had to live in fear of getting killed by Absalom for two years. Well, that's a sorry way to live. Is Listen, listen, listen. I know what I'm talking about. Two minutes is not worth two years. And two minutes is not worth ten years. And two minutes is not worth anything. And two minutes is not worth an eternity in hell. And during the two minutes, if if you're a child of God, your conscience is smiting you so bad that you can't even enjoy the two minutes. The apostle is asking you, what fruit had ye then in those things of which ye are now ashamed? And the end of those things is death. David thought it was easier being a dad and not questioning Adonijah, his fourth son. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 1, 6, at no time had David ever said, what are you doing, son? He thought it was easier to be a dad that was kind of AWOL, absent without leave, and let Adonijah do whatever he wanted. On his deathbed, Adonijah tries to take the throne from his own father. What fruit had ye then? Did it pay? David, did it pay that you neglected your son and didn't question him on what he was doing? When Solomon had to end up killing him because you created in him a rebellious spirit that couldn't be reined in? Peter thought that it was okay to appear a real spiritual leader of the apostles and to tell his Lord, Lord, though all, though all these guys are going to Deny you. I'll never deny you. I'll go to death for you. What fruit had you then? Did, did the feelings then of being a real macho Christian make up for the fact when Jesus turned and looked at him? Answer me. What did Peter do? He went out and wept bitterly. What fruit had you then in those things of which you are now ashamed? Peter gets around that little fire and he can't see anybody that really knows him that's going to say anything. A little maid comes up and says, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, he swears with an oath. No, I'm not. That felt good. They turned their attention to someone else and the conversation kept going about politics, business and weather. 
I did okay. I got out of that one. What fruit had he then? Was that feeling of saving himself by lying and betraying his Lord Jesus Christ, did it make up for the fact that in John chapter 21, Jesus had to do this to him? Simon Barjona, lovest thou me more than these? Simon Barjona, lovest thou me more than these? Simon, do you love me more than these? Three times. What fruit had ye then in those things of which ye are now ashamed? You know how you ought to confess your sins? I'm going to show you. Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. It's actually the 33rd chapter. I'm sorry. These are the words of Elihu, the only man that understood what was going on in the book of Job, a young man. The inspiration of the Almighty giveth men understanding. This man had some understanding. Job 33, verse 27. God, he, speaking of God, looketh upon men. And if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, And it profited me not. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. That is the best confessional prayer in one verse in the Bible. Three things. I have sinned. I am wrong. I did something I shouldn't have done. I broke your law. I, I, Jonathan Crosby, have sinned. I am a sinner. And I deserve the wages of it, which are death. I have sinned. I have perverted that which was right. Your commandments, every single one of them, even if I do not like them. You shouldn't say that, but every single commandment is right. Your commandment of monogamy, one man for one woman, is right. Your commandment for children to obey your parents is right. Your commandment for wives to submit to husbands is right. Your commandment not to whisper, backbite, or tailbear is right. And I perverted it. Your commandments are right. And I went against them. And I perverted what was right. right. Third point. And it did not profit me. Now I want to ask you a question. Is Elihu suggesting that this, conf- this repentant sinner lie in his prayer of confession? Or is he telling the truth? Sin is lose, 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 lose. So we answer the question, shall we continue in sin? No. Let's be slaves of righteousness. And let's add holiness to our righteousness. Let's pursue God and His righteousness. Let's hate sin. What's clutching at you right now, the power of death is taking us all down. We've got patches in here. We've got MRIs in here. We've got diabetes in here. We've got fibromyalgia. We've got hair falling out. We've got split ends. We've got all kinds of... Tra- you got guys are wearing glasses. What's wrong with your eyes? You've got false teeth. You've got bridges. And the bridges aren't to hold a car over a river. The bridge is to hold your mouth together. What's going on? You've got Viagra in your medicine cabinet. And you don't tell us about it. Why? 
Because death is clutching at you. That is the result of sin. Can we hate sin? Can we end this assembly hating sin and loving righteousness? What fruit had ye then? What more do you need to hear from me? Sin doesn't pay in the act. Sin doesn't pay after the act. Sin doesn't pay the rest of your life. And sin doesn't pay when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ from whose face the heaven and the earth flee away and you'll wish you had never sinned. And I'll tell you one thing, one second there, you'll wish that I had been a stronger pastor and that I had preached more forcefully. I believe that. You should believe it after reading those last five verses of that chapter. Look at that. That's how you confess sin. I have sinned. I have perverted that which was right. There's nothing in there I couldn't resist. I couldn't help myself. The devil made me do it. I have sinned. Your commandments are right. And I turned them upside down. And it didn't profit me. And that is sin. I wonder if Lot ever said it. I want to tell you someone who did. He's my brother. He's my brother David. I have sinned against the Lord. Did I read that whole passage to you? Forgive me. My mind just slipped. i got to read verse 28. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Do you mean in one sentence as short as verse 27, I can jump back into the middle of Psalm 36? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. With one sentence, can I get back in the middle of Psalm 36? Are you all with me? With one sentence? Offering your firstborn? 10,000 rivers of oil? Or one sentence? One sentence sincerely meant. David said, I have sinned against the Lord to Nathan. How long did God make him suffer? And how many pounds of flesh did he take right then? The Lord hath forgiven thee. Thou shalt not die. Even though he had just called for the death of a man who took a lamb. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? What reasoning do you need to help you? This is kind of weighty, isn't it? It's death. Verse 22. being Romans 6.22 But now being made free from sin. Free from sin. Does that mean we can't sin? Or does freedom from sin mean that we have heard the gospel... That has turned us from living in it without caring. But now being made free from sin, because we were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and converted by the glorious news of the gospel. That's what's implied, understood, and to be grasped there. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God by obeying the form of doctrine that was delivered to them in verse 17. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. It's win-win. From, from lose-lose, it goes to win-win. When you obey God, you have a holy life now, an everlasting life in the day to come. That is win-win. You say, well, what's the benefit of a holy life? What's the benefit of a holy life? You didn't grasp those six verses in the middle of Psalm 36. He'll make you drink. 
of the abundance of the rivers of his pleasures. He'll satisfy you as with great fatness. He'll give you light in the land of darkness. He is the fountain of life to you. Do you remember all that? That's for a holy life now. Win-win. But now, but now, as opposed to that 21st verse, which I just worked over, but now, being made free from sin, the gospel telling us that's not the way to live, this is the way to live, Christ has paid for all that. You're dead to that because you were baptized declaring so. Now live for Him. You've become servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness. There's a benefit and blessing to serving God right now. A holy life can fill you with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3. A holy life can bring the seven promises to you from the last few verses of 2 Corinthians 6 that Brother Newell has been writing you about each day this week and that I laid on you last Lord's Day. Because if we perfect holiness in the fear of God, we have these promises, dearly beloved. 2 Corinthians 7.1 He'll be our God. He'll dwell with us. He'll walk with us. He'll receive us. He'll be our Father. We'll be His sons and daughters. By a holy life now, God will walk with me in this world. Like Enoch. There's so much blessings. Now, do you know what Jesus said to Peter one time? When the rich young ruler walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ because he had too much, he didn't want to sell it and give it to the poor. Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. I ain't like that guy. Give me a little pat in the back, Lord. I ain't like that guy that just turned away from you. I've forsaken everything to follow you. Still married. You know what Jesus said? No man. No man, Peter, including you, have forsaken houses or lands, brothers or sisters, wives, mothers or fathers, friends, that doesn't receive, help me, a hundredfold in, when? When? You're kidding me. A hundredfold in this life? What's a hundredfold to a, an investment manager? Give me the percentage return. 10,000% return in this life and in the world to come. Everlasting life. Hello? Is that win-win? That is Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. What fruit do we have by living a holy life? We can be filled with all the fullness of God. God will be our Father. He'll receive us and walk with us. He'll give us 10,000% return in everything we give up now and eternal life in the world to come. Peter, you haven't done anything. I've done it all. Whatever you've given up, I've given you a 10,000% return. And I'm going to give you eternal life in the world to come. Don't brag about you being such a good boy. Are you with me on this? Let it be grasped. Even if the Bible weren't true, it is the best standard by which to live your life in the world. We know the Bible is true. We believe absolutely without a doubt it's true in every single word. But what if it wasn't written by God? It's still the only holy book in the world that makes sense. It tells you more about marriage. It tells you about child training finances, avoiding risk, than any other book in the universe. It describes love in ways that there is no other book or song can even come close to it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. A holy life now brings God's blessing, His fellowship, His presence. He multiplies anything that you give up for Him, and He gives you eternal life in the world to come. Sister, we ain't very much in the way of brothers. 
And the Lord took your brother, and you didn't give him up. The Lord took him. But we hope that we're your brothers. There's a few in here. Do all the brothers want I won't ask you to stand. You have some brothers. If there's something he'd do for you that I wouldn't, you need to send me an email this afternoon. I have no friends outside this church. Don't want any. I had plenty. I knew a man, voted most all around. I knew a man that had lots of people that wanted to be around him at Michigan National. Couldn't give a rip about any of them. Let those pagans suck from the tits of this world and fill their bellies and then drop into hell. You are my brethren. Every single one of you is worth a thousand of them. I love the Word of God. Paul, Paul got me. Look at those two verses. What fruit had you then? I know that side of the story. There's no fruit. There was nothing worth the pain, trouble, dysfunction, misery, guilt, shame that comes from sin, and it's going to take a person to an eternal hell. Verse 22, I also know this, that hearing the gospel and being a servant of God, you have fruit unto holiness and God's presence and satisfaction of soul that can't be matched by anything in this world, and in the end, you end up getting the icing on the cake. And I do not speak disrespectfully. And the icing just happens to be eternal life forever with God in heaven. I do not know how else to present it to you. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God is not fair. If God were fair, he would pay the wages of the 23rd verse. But he's not fair. He's merciful and he's gracious. And instead of paying me the wages I so well earned, he's adopted me to be his son by sacrificing his own son in my place, killing his son instead of killing me and giving me that son's perfect righteousness so that I can live with him forever. Every bit of my guilt, my shame, my punishment before God was poured upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he took it all. So it says... For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do we need to ask the question again, shall we continue in sin? Our baptisms declared we wouldn't. The gospel tells us to be slaves of God. And as we hear that gospel, we realize the things that we did in the past are shameful. And they lead us to death in all its phases and aspects. And if we were to live a holy life, there's 10,000% return now and more. All the fullness of God's better than 10,000%. Amen. And eternal life in the world to come. How are you going to live as we walk out of this assembly? The gospel has come to your ears, and this is how Paul wrote to the church at Rome in the sixth chapter. I want to tell you that I believe the sixth chapter is more important for you and me than chapters 1 through 5. We want to know what we ought to be doing for him. And it told us, slaves of God unto righteousness and holiness. The fruit now, the presence, pleasure, satisfaction, contentment, delight, companionship of walking with God and eternal life in the world to come. Let's do it, brethren, by his grace.